Welcome to Sharp Waves, a podcast from the International League Against Epilepsy. Our episodes cover epilepsy research, clinical care, career development, and issues in diagnosis and treatment from around the globe. Hi, I'm Patricia Saleri, neuroscientist and member of the Young Epilepsy section of ILE. Today, we are going to talk with Dr. Andrew Cole and Dr. Alice Lam about the relationship between Alzheimer's disease and epilepsy. Hello, Dr. Cole. Hello, Dr. Lam. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you both here in our podcast. Um, I would like to ask you both to introduce yourself. Sure. Hi. Thank you for inviting us. Uh, it's fun to be here. Uh, I'm Andrew Cole. I run the Epilepsy Service at Mass General, and I'm Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School. And I've worked mainly in epilepsy and clinical neurophysiology for about, uh, well, 30-some-odd years now. Hi, I'm Alice Lamb. I'm an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, and I'm a neurologist. I specialize in epilepsy as well as in memory disorders, and I have a research program that uh, basically looks at the intersection between epilepsy and neurodegenerative disease. Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia that occurs uh, later in life. Uh, it's commonly in, in the elderly, while epilepsy is characterized by seizure and affects young children uh, to old adults. So we can find the disease in a very a large range of age. What is the relationship between both diseases? Um, I think Alzheimer's and epilepsy are, are completely different diseases uh, at some level. One is a progressive cognitive a disturbance, a dementing illness uh, that's characterized by a very specific neuropathology. And the other, epilepsy, is a collection actually of many different illnesses, some genetic, some acquired, uh, that cause seizures, recurrent uh, seizures. Uh, so epilepsy is a bit of a, a basket of many different things, whereas Alzheimer's at some level, is a relatively stereotyped degenerative process. Now, it is true, and Alice will talk more about this in a moment, that Alzheimer's has clear genetic components, and there are some probably purely genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there may or may not be other forms. I'm not an expert at that. I think the thing that's of interest is how these two syndromes or two conditions involves some similar areas of the brain on many occasions. And that's sort of what got, got us interested in this question about seizures and Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's, Alzheimer himself studied the brain pathologically and studied the hippocampus in particular and made observations of specific morphological and ultimately others found biochemical changes in those structures. Epilepsy, while it can come from different parts of the brain, frequently comes from the hippocampus as well. And epilepsy scientists have studied the hippocampus also for many years, but not so much with respect to its biochemistry and its anatomy, but with respect to its physiology. And the sort of insight that has led us to where we are today was that the same structure that's affected in different ways by very different diseases uh, may play a role in linking the two conditions. And that's sort of how, how I got interested in this, in this problem and some observations that we made that we can talk about in a few minutes. So can they occur in the same time? 
Yes, of course. Older patients with Alzheimer's disease can develop seizures related to the Alzheimer's disease or unrelated. For example, after a head injury or a stroke or development of a coexistent brain tumor. We don't see a lot of Alzheimer's disease in young people, very young people. Uh, so in that sense, there's, there's some distinction. Alice, you, you have perspectives on this that are very different or very, you know, from a different perspective. What do, what do, you, what do you think about this question about Alzheimer's and epilepsy that, that's asked here? Uh, I mean, I think you did a really nice job addressing that they are two pretty different diseases um, or probably conditions is the best way to, to put it. Um, I'll say that I think that Alzheimer's disease has more heterogeneity, I think, than than maybe you alluded to. Um, you know, it's characterized by specific brain pathologies, right? Amyloid and tau pathology and um, things that people are starting to look at more now using um, in, in vivo using approaches like PET imaging. Um, and I think that using some of these approaches, people are starting to realize that there's a lot more heterogeneity than than maybe we initially appreciated. But that said, you know, thinking back to this idea that, you know, in older adults, you can have epilepsy and Alzheimer's disease kind of occurring at the same time. You know, that's something that I've kind of been interested in, at least from a clinical standpoint, um, having clinics, again, both in epilepsy as well as in memory disorders, um, that there is a substantial number of people who present with nuanced epilepsy in their older years. I mean, you know, in their late 50s, 60s, and, and, and afterwards, where they, you know, present with nuanced epilepsy for unknown reasons, right? You can't see a stroke, you don't see a tumor, they don't have a history of, of brain injury or anything like that. But then shortly after they develop seizures, they develop cognitive decline, cognitive impairments. And when you start to study these patients a little more closely, and, and you know, you, you do a diagnostic workup, a fair number of these people will actually have Alzheimer pathology, right? Um, and so the idea is that their seizures may have been a very early manifestation of, of Alzheimer's disease. So there's some people who think that there may be this epileptic prodromal variant of, of Alzheimer's disease that presents, again, initially with seizures and then is followed by, by cognitive impairment. Um, but that's something that's still very early in our, in our um, we're very early in, in our understanding of this, of this process. Does one of the disease increase the, the chances of the other one the occurrence of the other one in these patients? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there have been a number of epidemiologic studies just in the last few years that have really highlighted that there's a bi-directional association between these diseases. So if you have epilepsy, regardless of what age of onset, you know, you're, um, you start having seizures, you have a two to threefold increased risk of developing dementia uh, mm -hmm. later in life. Whereas if you have dementia, you also have a two to threefold increased risk of developing epilepsy. And so why that bidirectional relationship exists, whether there are shared risk factors, um, still we're still trying to sort through that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of that, Alice. That's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. When, when we first started thinking about epilepsy in the context of Alzheimer's disease, we sort of speculated about different arrangements uh, or different relationships, uh, you know, with, without good epidemiologic data. W one relationship that's been highlighted by, by older thinking or that's been uh, adopted in older thinking 
was that epilepsy is just a byproduct of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative disease. And whenever anything goes wrong with the brain, sometimes people have seizures because that's one of the things the brain does when it's unhappy. It makes seizures, becomes electrically unstable. It's really a, a, not a symptom, but a secondary uh, consequence of the disease and, and really has nothing to do with the biology of the disease itself. Another possibility um, is that there is something about the Alzheimer pathology that actually produces hyperexcitability in a, in a specified way. We can't specify the way, but that there is a, a specified path and that this accounts for the occurrence of epilepsy in patients with Alzheimer's. But as far as we know, epilepsy is not universal among Alzheimer's patients. And if it was specific to the consequence of a particular pathology, you might expect that it would be uh, extremely common. And we're not sure how common it is. Regardless of what the relationship is between the Alzheimer's and the epilepsy, though, there are other questions. For example, does the epilepsy contribute to the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease? Is some of the cognitive dysfunction actually due not to the plaque or the tangle itself, but to the electrical instability? And of course, the corollary would be, if so, perhaps if we could modulate that hyperexcitability pharmacologically or some other way, we could at least improve some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, even if we don't change the natural history of protein deposition and plaque formation and cell loss and other things. Um, so, so there's the issue of whether epilepsy contributes to the progression of Alzheimer's disease. That's sort of the third issue. Is it possible that the epilepsy actually somehow interacts with some of the mechanisms underlying Alzheimer's pathology? And I'm sort of talking about the canonical plaques and tangles and amyloid and tau. And I realize that many Alzheimer's scientists feel that the collection of things we call Alzheimer's disease probably has more diversity than, than that formulation allows for. Is it possible that the actual electrical events somehow speed that process, somehow make that process worse? And that even if we couldn't reverse the process, we could slow it down or change the course of decline of patients who, have, who are fated to have Alzheimer's dementia. So there are these different timescales and different relationship perspectives that we all have to jostle. And of course, the hardest thing to do would be to demonstrate that somehow stopping seizures would slow Alzheimer's disease. You need a huge population to be able to see a significant change in the slope uh, that would make you think, wow, this is, this is really important. It's easier to know whether stopping seizures provides some symptomatic benefit, that the patient's not as dysfunctional, at least for a while, as they would otherwise be. Um, and then the, the causation story is, is yet another one. There is biochemical data, and Alice can speak to this more than I can, from David Holtzman and others, suggesting that certain kinds of electrical activity can promote the release of amyloid, soluble amyloid, uh, and can perhaps modulate tau deposition and tau phosphorylation. That's not well demonstrated as far as I know, but there are some model systems at least in which there appears to be a relationship between activity, activity-dependent pathologies essentially. And that obviously would be a great target, a therapeutic target if that were, were robust. You know, most of the data that we have in terms of how epileptiform activity and hyperexcitability might affect the, the not just clinical, but you know, biological progression of Alzheimer's disease comes from animal models. Um, it's really the animal models of Alzheimer's disease that, that really kind of started this field, right? In terms of, you know, mouse models where, where these, this idea of silent seizures and, and silent epileptiform activity was really first discovered 
And then it was in mouse models where people started using anti-seizure medications to see if you know they could stop these seizures and stop the spikes and and um, and found that you could actually improve cognition if you did that in, in a mouse model of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so in these models as well, you know, a lot of work in cell cultures and, 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 and brain slices, um, very careful, you know, biochemical and electrophysiologic work has shown that just soluble amyloid and soluble tau can cause neurons to become hyper, hyper active really. Um, and that in turn, there's again, another feed forward pathway here where neural hyperactivity was found to drive the release of soluble amyloid and tau from neurons and, and actually drive downstream deposition of these proteins into, into plaques and tangles. You know, whether those pathways exist in, in humans, um, not totally clear yet. Alzheimer's disease in mice is, is quite different from Alzheimer's disease in, in humans, of course. Um, but, you know, it provides sort of that, that um, foundation for us to start thinking about these kinds of processes in, in human Alzheimer's disease and thinking about whether we can manipulate these processes and, and affect clinical outcomes. I would like to talk a little bit more about the silent seizures um, in Alzheimer's disease patients. Um, I, I had access to a very interesting uh, work uh, from both of you that you published in 2017, Nature and Medicine in which you uh, record the activity with intracranial electrodes uh, into patients with cognitive decline um, who also had normal sleep architecture in scalp EEG. And then you found, um, you found out some silent seizures happening. What, what are your perspectives for the future um, considering uh, the silent seizures that these patients can have? So... The fundamental question was brought to, to us in conversation with Jeff Nobles and Leonard Mookie, who had identified hippocampal seizures in a particular amyloid transgenic mouse. Uh, and they asked the question, do you think this happens in people and how would you look for it? And we had this little thing going on in our epilepsy surgery program where we use these particular electrodes called foramen ovale electrodes, which are actually not intra intracerebral, but they are intracranial. Uh, in other words, they're inside the brain, the skull, but outside the brain. They end up right along the hippocampus. I said, well, we just have the perfect tool to answer this question. We just need to find some patients with Alzheimer's disease and who will let us put these electrodes in and see whether we can actually see seizures. And lo and behold, over some years, we looked and, and we came across a couple of individuals who had a curious little funny thing about their dementia phenotype, at least as best I could recognize, which was that they had a lot of fluctuation. They had good days and bad days. And the regular amount of fluctuation, which the Alzheimer's doctors are familiar with, is maybe like this. And these patients had just slightly higher amplitudes of fluctuation, almost as if odd things were happening sometimes to them. And because of this, we asked the question, could they have seizures going on, actually, that give them these bad days? And eventually, someone agreed to allow us to do this procedure. And lo and behold, uh, the first evening that she went to sleep with these electrodes, she had a bunch of clear, crisp, electrographic seizures coming from the hippocampus with no sign really on the scalp to speak of. It would have given us a clue that this was going on. And a little clinical change, she was asleep, apparently. The only thing that would happen is at the end of each of these, she would arouse and sort of wake up a little bit. And just like anyone might wake up in the middle of the night, it wouldn't attract any particular attention, but that was sort of a phenomenon at the end. And we found a second patient with a similar story, and we did the same thing, and we found the same results. So suddenly, in two out of two patients, 
we had seen this phenomenon of these silent nocturnal seizures uh, that you could record with these hippocampal electrodes or foramen ovale electrodes. So that's kind of what started this whole thing. And it was based on animal observations and trying to translate those to people. Did we just get lucky? Were these the only two people in Boston that have this and we happened to study both of them? It didn't seem very likely, but what is the actual frequency of this? Is it rare, common, or universal? Uh, we don't know. We still don't know for sure. I suspect that it's common, but not universal. How could we detect this in another way? We can't put these electrodes into everybody. I initially thought that people would want to have this test to find out, but it turns out patients are much smarter than, than we are. <laughs> You're not going to put those electrodes in my head. Absolutely not. Especially because you can't demonstrate to me that giving me anti-seizure medicines would make me think any better. And of course, with an N of two, we couldn't demonstrate that. And so that began the quest for a way to try to, to recognize this phenotype without actually having to do the instrumentation. And Alice took that challenge on a couple of years ago and has done some amazing stuff, which she'll tell you about. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, this is a this is a challenge, right? Where do we go from from this discovery, and how do we translate that into a wider population of um, patients with Alzheimer's disease, and understand what the significance of it is, whether it's treatable, modifiable, things like that? So, what we've been doing um, in my lab for the past few years is trying to use data sets that come from people with temporal lobe epilepsy in order to develop machine learning algorithms that allow us to look at their scalp EEGs and infer from their scalp EEG whether there is this silent hippocampal activity going on deeper in the brain that we can't actually see with our naked eye, you know, looking at these EEGs, but that, again, using um, signal processing and, and these machine learning techniques, we can actually identify. You know, we're, look, we're lucky at MGH to have this large data set of um, basically combined scalp EEG recordings along with foramen ovale electrode recordings, the, the same kinds of electrodes that we use in those patients with Alzheimer's disease. And we have a bunch of patients with temporal lobe epilepsy who had previously been studied at our institution and underwent these recordings. You know, they'd come into the epilepsy monitoring unit, be monitored for, you know, days to weeks at a time. And we have a lot of this data. So the idea there is that we can train these algorithms to essentially recognize the scalp signatures of these silent spikes. We were actually able to do this recently. We published a paper in JAMA Neurology um, earlier this year. Um, describing a deep learning algorithm that we used that can identify and detect um, these hippocampal spikes um, from just scalp EEG alone and with pretty good accuracy as well. Again, this was just in temporal lobe epilepsy patients. I think it's it's pretty promising, especially in, in these in these patients. And now where the hard work is in trying to apply this in Alzheimer's or an older adult. So that's that's what we envision. You know, that's one approach that we could take to try to understand this phenomena better. Again, in a in a more widely accessible way, I think scalp EEG is certainly feasible in in people with Alzheimer's disease, um, and uh, and it would be a non invasive way to to be able to look for this activity and try to correlate uh, that activity with again clinical outcomes, cognitive function, things like that. Aside from the um, sort of the machine learning component of this system that you've developed. Do you think it would be interesting to talk briefly about some of the uh, more common EEG variants that have always thought to be normal that seem to be overrepresented in, in this population? Is that sure. Um, yeah, I think so. Andy, I think you're referring to our, our um, neurology paper in 2020, where we, we had studied um, people with Alzheimer's disease using 24-hour scalp EEGs. So we captured overnight sleep in these patients and spent a lot of time 
looking at, you know, actually visually reviewing these studies uh, very carefully. Um, one of the things we found that was interesting in these in these patients was that, you know, there's this so-called benign variant um, on scalp EEG called small sharp spikes or benign epileptiform transients of sleep bets. There are these small, tiny little sh sharp um, well, spikes, basically, that you can see during, you know, early stages of sleep. And it's thought to be benign, not to have an association with, with epilepsy. I had gotten interested in these because actually when we were reviewing the foramen ovale electrode recordings from our Alzheimer's patients, you know, from the Nature Medicine paper, we were looking at, you know, both the scalp EEG as well as the foramen ovale electrodes at the same time. And one of the things that we noticed was that some of these foramen ovale, the spikes that you saw the foramen ovale electrode actually had a small scalp correlate. It looked exactly like one of these small sharp spikes or bet something that we would just, you know, look at and as an EEG or just kind of you know, blow over as that's just a normal variant. Um, but I got interested in whether this might actually be a, a scalp signature of these of these hippocampal spikes. And so we did find actually a fair a fair number of patients with Alzheimer's disease who had much higher numbers of of these small sharp spikes than we would expect to see, or that we saw really in you know older adult controls who are cognitively normal. Again, the the clinical significance of this isn't clear. Um, but there does seem to be an association where patients who had more of these small spike, small sharp spikes and who had them unilaterally, you know, either involved in just the right side or the left side, um, tended to be patients who had Alzheimer's disease and, and also had, had epileptiform activity or had epilepsy. What is the potential for using EEG biomarkers like this epileptiform abnormalities in Alzheimer's disease? Registration is now open for the 15th European Epilepsy Congress, held September 7th through 11th in Rome, Italy. Join your colleagues for five days of teaching courses, platform sessions, symposia, career development sessions, and more. To receive a discount on registration fees, register by May 10th. Visit the ILAE website for more information or register directly at bit.ly slash ILAE Rome. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash I-L-A-E-R-O-M-E, -E, all lowercase. Thanks for listening. I don't, I don't think I could answer that question. I mean, if we recognize ultimately a tight association between the occurrence of these benign epileptiform transients of sleep and the development of Alzheimer's disease, that would be very interesting. But I think there are a lot of reasons why people in the Alzheimer age group or pre-Alzheimer age group can have seizures or electrical abnormality on their EEG. And Alzheimer's may be one of those, but it's not the only one. And whether there'll be a distinctive marker or not, I don't know. There, there is an interesting experiment that's sort of doable. And um, again, Alice can help me fill in the blanks here, but one of our uh, colleagues here uh, is very interested in the genetically determined Alzheimer presenilin mutation, Alzheimer's disease that's uh, seen in a very large extended family in Colombia. The, the genetic effect, the, the, the strength of, the, of having this gene, this, this gene which is in this family is almost 100% predictive of developing Alzheimer's disease at a very specific age. And I may have it slightly wrong, but it's typically, I think, between 40 and 45. Um, so this familial Alzheimer's and this presenilin mutation family. 
And it's so predictable. There are only a handful of patients who should have developed the disease that haven't out of thousands uh, that you know exactly when it's going to start. So if you're going to try to figure out, is there a good biomarker for who's likely to have this gene and you didn't have the genetic information, you could do EEGs on 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 35-year-olds, you know, years before they're unfortunately going to develop this, the phenotype of the disease and understand whether there are clear EEG uh, predictors or biomarkers, if you will. But that would also then create an opportunity to do some pretty clever focused trials to understand whether modulating the activity, the electrical abnormality would actually change the, the latency uh, to presentation of the first cognitive symptoms. Now, of course, that's an uh, that, that points out the other side of the problem that we talked about at the beginning of this thing is that probably not all Alzheimer's disease is the same. So here's a very specific genetic mutation in a specific family with a specific phenotype. We don't know, or at least I don't know as, a, as an epileptologist, how representative that is of the general Alzheimer's population. I'm sure we could find a predictive biomarker in this family. Of course, we have a great one now. We can just do a, a, a genetic test and have pretty much 100% certainty in this particular family. But we could find a physiological biomarker uh, there that is of no relevance to anyone else with any other variants of Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot to, a lot of controls and a lot of work that has to be done. But um, it seems like a, a, a golden opportunity to address the question that you've asked about EEG biomarkers, uh, because you know so much in advance of when it's going to happen. Yeah, that's a great example, Andy. Um, I was going to say that, you know, when we talk about biomarkers, it's it's worth saying a biomarker for what, right? And so, Andy, I think you're, you're talking about a biomarker as a diagnostic biomarker for, for Alzheimer's disease. I guess when I think about these epileptiform abnormalities in Alzheimer's disease, like, again, I agree with Andy that I don't think it's a universal phenomenon. I think that we're talking about, you know, a subgroup of patients who might have this kind of hyperexcitable profile. Um, so I, I tend to think about the biomarkers in terms of prognostic biomarkers, right? So do these epileptiform abnormalities portend a more rapid clinical uh, course, like a more rapid cognitive decline? And there's some data that that, that might be the case. Um, you know, so Keith Vossel had published a paper looking at these kinds of scalp EEG and, and MEG um, subclinical spikes in people with Alzheimer's disease and showed that, you know, patients who have these spikes actually decline at a faster rate than those uh, who don't have these spikes. Um, so that would be one interesting use, you know, to be able to prognosticate who's going to decline faster or not. Um, I think that'd be useful information for patients and families, but also for something like stratifying for clinical trials, right, where there's so much disease heterogeneity. Um, and then also in thinking about, you know, targeted therapies for Alzheimer's disease. We talked about how this is a heterogeneous disease and whether treatment of hyperexcitability, you know, whether hyperexcitability is a modifiable um, risk factor for cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease, right? Should we treat everybody with Alzheimer's disease with seizure medication? That's, you know, often a question we get. Um, I, I, I don't know, but I would guess that if not everybody has this hyperexcitability, you're going to be treating a lot of people who aren't going to, going to benefit, right? Um, so how do we select which people might be most likely to respond to, to that kind of treatment? I think the EEG as a biomarker could be very good for that. And actually, Keith Vossel, you know, there was a study that he published, um, I think, late last year, the LEV-AD trial. And this was a trial looking at people with Alzheimer's disease being treated with levetiracetam, very low doses of levetiracetam. It's like 125 milligrams BID. But one of the interesting things about this trial is that, you know, they, before they treated anybody, they did 
24-hour scalp EEGs and, and one-hour MEG studies on all of the participants and stratified participants based on whether or not they had this epileptiform activity, right? So when they looked at the results overall of all the participants, they, it was a negative study. They didn't see any effect of levetiracetam on, on the outcome of interest, which I think was an executive function measure. But you know, in their subgroup analyses, when they stratified by which patients had epileptiform activity versus which didn't, they actually did see an effect only in patients who had the epileptiform activity. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of a promising indication that that this kind of biomarker could be useful to, you know, to identify a group of people with Alzheimer's disease who might benefit from this kind of therapeutic approach. There's a lot of caveats, of course. It was a very small trial. Um, it was a trial that was done in a very early onset Alzheimer's population. So how that you know how that will translate to a more typical Alzheimer's population isn't isn't clear yet, but I but I think the idea there again of using this tool to stratify participants is is a really important one. And there's actually a number of clinical trials out right now, you know, that are ongoing right now that I think will likely be reporting in the next year or two, um, looking at levetiracetam again in early stages of of Alzheimer's disease and in people who don't necessarily have seizures, right and you know, it'll be interesting to see because I don't think that a lot of these studies necessarily use that kind of stratification. Some of these studies just take all comers. Um, and so interpreting the results will be will be kind of interesting, um, depending on whether they stratified or not. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. One question that with the the uh, Lev AD thing is whether in the subgroup analysis, there's enough statistical power to really make a meaningful statement in the subgroups. It does. It does point to an interesting Interesting set of questions. You know, I, I gave a talk recently about EEG biomarkers at, at a scientific meeting uh, and what they might be used for. And there's been a long history in the psychiatric world of trying to use quantitative analysis of EEG to make diagnostic and predictive statements about psychiatric disease, which is largely, by many people, thought not to be terribly helpful. Uh, but with some of the machine learning things that Alice was describing earlier and different ways of looking at large sets of EEG and, and, and pulling out, you know, statistically robust uh, findings, that world may be changing. There's a very nice paper by uh, Bob Califf, who's now the head of the FDA. He was a cardiologist at Duke uh, on biomarkers, uh, specifically from the FDA's point of view. And I think the most interesting thing about the paper is uh, that he defines uh, two, three, four, five, six, at least seven different types of biomarkers, ranging from diagnostic markers to monitoring markers, to prognostic markers, to safety markers, to susceptibility and risk markers. So you can think about how EEG or other tools might fit into a set of questions around a, an Alzheimer population or an epilepsy population and pick and choose. So one thing that's kind of interesting, if you think about the Colombian family that I talked about a moment ago, Imagine if people went and, and did the proper EEGs and found that 20 years before they're going to become symptomatic, there were characteristic EEG changes in the affecteds versus the unaffecteds or the ones who were going to be affected and said, well, let's, let's give a medicine to see if we can prevent this disease from happening or happen later. Maybe, maybe an anti-seizure medicine, for example. I'm not saying that would be the case. But you might be able to monitor that EEG over time as part of your dose-finding approach. What dose would be the right dose to give? Well, if this is the biomarker that I'm seeing, maybe I should give a dose that's big enough to suppress that biomarker. Uh, so can I reduce spike frequency by at least 50% with 200 milligrams of compound X? And that'll be our sort of hurdle point, if you will. So you can imagine a lot of different ways of using these, these observations as biomarkers. And, and we've just discussed a, a small subset of them. 
Uh, there, there are many others. Um, so I think there's a there's a future for EEG biomarkers, not in the old way, but it may be a new way. I'd like to thank you, both of you. Uh, congratulate both of you for the amazing work that you have been doing in the field. And thank you for participating in our episode today. Thanks for having us. It was kind of fun to, uh, to chat about this. Thanks, Patricia. Thanks for listening to Sharpwaves. Our content is meant for informational purposes only and not as medical or clinical advice. The International League Against Epilepsy is the world's preeminent association of health professionals and scientists working toward a world where no person's life is limited by epilepsy. Find more Sharp Waves episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at ilae.org.